Off the ball's the best, number one. It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say like... I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Great to have you with us here on the Sunday Papers. I'll run you through the front pages first of all. Sunday Times are going big with the FA Cup semi-final yesterday. A gift for Easter. It's a picture of Zach Steffen. Well, he's just realising things have gone very badly for him as uh, Mane puts the ball into the net. So City goalkeeper Wembley Howler proves decisive as Liverpool stay on course for quadruple. Uh, Beneath that as well, a story about Paul Pogba in ugly exchange with United fans after abuse at Old Trafford. So he was getting dogs abuse and he dared... He dared put his hands to his ears and they all went apoplectic when he did so. So that's Pogba and the end game really for him at Old Trafford. Sunday Independent, they are going with Munster's win yesterday at Thoman Park. Munster March On is the headline. And then beneath that, an acknowledgement that the championship very much up and running. Easter rising as big guns set to face off, not least Limerick against Cork today. We have Sun Sport then. Don't look Zach in anger. This is Pep backing his goalkeeper after the howler yesterday. And that Pogba story as well. Pog's abuse for Star. Sunday World go with Kanate. Keeps on scoring at the moment. Reds walk Khan. Uh, Manchester City 2, Liverpool 3. Yesterday we have the Sunday Mirror. Again, a picture of Mane celebrating. Hand of quad. Uh, Jurgen Klopp last night urged Liverpool to become the quad squad and win the quadruple. Uh, we have the Mail on Sunday then. Mane fires up Liverpool's quadruple dream. And then a story which catches the eye. 88 footballers fail drug tests. Back page of the mail. Fair up to say. Uh, we're joined on the line by Sarah Donovan, All-Ireland winning Camogie player. You can hear us there, Sarah. I can indeed. Great to have you with us. And in studio, Irish international, former coach in France and Wales, Bernard Jackman. Great to have you in as well. Good morning. 88 footballers fail drugs test. So that would catch the eye. We should elaborate on that for people. 15 Premier League stars on the list, but given no bans. This is Edmund Willison in the mail on Sunday. At least 15... Premier League footballers failed drug tests between 2015 and 2020. Not one of them was given a ban. So in total, 88 footballers failed tests between 2013 and 2020. But to focus on the Premier League for a moment, 12 of the failed tests by Premier League stars were for banned performance-enhancing substances, including one positive test for an amphetamine and three findings of triamcinolone, which was uh, very much discussed around Bradley Wiggins and that Tour de France win about a decade ago. So if I flick inside page 63, the piece is given a full page within. 15 top flight stars failed drugs tests, but no one is banned. So uh, the piece continues that uh, one positive test for an amphetamine, three findings of triamcinolone. There were four positives for the stimulant uh, Ritalin and one for a testosterone booster as well, a hormone which the piece says is often abused in cycling and mixed martial arts. The remaining top-flight positives were for steroids and uh, a derivative of a diuretic as well, which can aid weight loss. So the reason that there were no bans is that UCAD say they were down to either accidental ingestion or therapeutic use exemptions. And then cocaine features as well here, which I don't think will shock anyone massively. Thoughts on all this, Bernard? Yeah, it's, it's um, pretty shocking, to be honest. Uh, there was a big feature on 
cocaine in French rugby actually during the week in, in L'Equipe which um, w- went quite deep and, and had some you know startling revelation, revelations but this is this is phenomenally um, worrying or, or, or shocking I know we shouldn't be shocked with sport, drugs and sport but what's really interesting is they've got a, a kind of a graphic here of the non-league Premier League players who failed drug tests between 2013 and 2020 and the bans that they got um, for 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 those failures, and then on the right hand side they've got the Premier League players, and it's the same type of drugs, um, but no sanctions, um, and it really brings home, I think, if you have the the money behind you to, I suppose, argue your case and, and fight it, and and obviously have, provide medical backup, etc. It seems that they're getting, um, well, they are getting a much more lenient um, sentence or no sentence compared to the non the non league Premier players and just one you know one little bit is in October 2019 a 15-year-old child registered Premier League club was found with a banned gro- human growth hormone dispensing pen and banned for nine months um, yeah, like look at there's so much money there's so much at stake here it's not a surprise that there's drugs involved but I think what's the two things jump out at me as I said one the, the non-action against the Premier League players uh, who have been found to have uh, ingested uh, these these drugs but also um, how slow uh, so th- this information has come out under the Freedom of Information Act mm. um, but it took three times longer than it should have um, to be protested by UK anti-doping so it's not not a good look for uh, for soccer and, and football in the UK in, the, in this article the piece says, again, sticking with the Premier League story for a moment, it must be assu- uh, assumed that three players who tested positive for Triumcinolone had TUEs in 2017 and 18. None were sanctioned. Triumcinolone is an anti-inflammatory drug that can, for example, be injected locally to treat knee injuries. However, it can also be used as a performance-enhancing drug by a non-injured athlete. So the presumption is that the players in question were injured. So, for instance, uh, Bradley Wiggins used the drug legally after uh, acquiring a TUE, although a parliamentary investigation found that Britain had crossed a, quote, ethical line, end quote. Players tested positive for Ritalin in 2018 and 19. It's used to treat ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but it can also enhance uh, performance is the point. And then it. He writes here, the Premier League are understood to be comfortable that all 12 performance announcing cases had innocent explanations, hence no punishment from UCAD or the FA, the bodies that police drug testing. We're at a stage in sports, Sarah, where TUEs across sport can and uh, be and are abused. And then in other instances, they are completely legitimate. And so that will be the question Premier League clubs will be asked now to maybe give more evidence or to assure people that the use of these TUEs was absolutely legitimate. That's a funny, I, I suppose, from my point of view, I did a drug test in 2007 in Croke Park. We had just lost to Wexford. I'm coming down the tunnel. I'm absolutely gutted. In All-Ireland final, I get the curly finger. I find myself in a kind of a standard kind of back room in Croke Park and I have a lady standing in the room with me and she's asking me to take a drugs test and I, I'm wondering how have I found myself in this position and all of a sudden have I or should I be worried about the situation I put myself in and I'm looking here at the instances of I suppose a failure right um, and at that point in 2007 we weren't educated on the sensitivities of drug testing and over the years, we, we became very aware of the things that you could or couldn't do or take, you know, paracetamol and neurofen, you know, the triggers. And uh, I, I suppose it, it's laid bare here in terms of the, the substances that have 
you know, that trigger a positive or negative test. And at a, as a starting point, I feel like the education around drugs testing needs to be looked at. And I don't know if Bernard um, would agree with me on this. You're thrown into it before you're even aware of how you po- could effectively fail a test. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just I think in, in professional sport, um, it's probably a lot easier because they have the players um, on site all the time. So they run, um, they run webinars, you know, educational briefings. It depends whether it's the head of medical or or the doctor that that runs that. So I think from from a professional point of view, and now in in Irish rugby or in all professional rugby, you're getting these kids in on contracts in the academy. So um, you're probably getting a chance to educate them a little bit earlier. Um, and certainly, all players know that. If they're an, if they're going to take anything that's not food, that they need to run it by the uh, the head of medical. I suppose from uh, from amateur sports, that's where it's a lot mm. a lot more difficult in terms of um, do they know what they're allowed to take? Sure. You know? But there is an onus now on the on the athletes, whether it's amateur or pro, to uh, to understand what's legal and what's not. And to be fair, in this in, in these instances, we're not talking about those kinds of drugs. We're talking about. Uh, ones that really you, you can't just buy over the counter. So, I mean, the, the question really is for things like Triamcinolone and uh, Ritalin, the, the issue is that these drugs can be used absolutely legitimately. So, for instance, the piece does point out Triamcinolone is an anti-inflammatory drug that can, for example, be used locally to treat knee injuries. So if you look here, we're talking here across the space of five years and I'm seeing Triamcinolone once, twice, three times three times in five years, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that footballers would have needed an injection into their knee and a doctor gave it to them and hence it showed up in a test. I don't think, you know, if we if we had seen 200 cases here of triamcinolone, then I think it would be very questionable and there would be a real sense that the TUE system was being completely abused. Uh, Ritalin, one, two, three, four cases of Ritalin. It's an ADHD medication. Again, very much open to abuse if you don't need it. But is it beyond the bounds of possibility that across however many players are in the Premier League that it would have been uh, found in in player systems four or five times? It's not. So, you know, I I guess we need more information here. Is is, is the piece suggesting that these TUEs have been abused or is it very much just a case of, well, here's what we found and we don't have any more information. The cocaine jumps out, I suppose, cocaine in 2015 and the... Premier League, there's so there's no ban. It seems if you are test positive for co- for cocaine as a Premier League player, there's no ban. But if you're a non Premier League player and you test positive for cocaine, there's a two year ban. Yeah, that's um, that, that, that's what jumped out at me. Yeah. And incredible, obviously, incredible celebrations <laughs> if you uh, make it from the Championship up to the Premier League that night. <laughs> <Exactly>. Bombs away. <laughs> exactly. And look at the, you know the the drugs for ADHD. Absolutely, if you take that percentage of of, of professional soccer players in the Premiership, you know. There's bound to be players who suffer from ADHD and they have medication for it. I think what the argue, well, how I read th- this article was, it was the worry that certain doctors or players um, may use the ADHD to mask something else. That's that's how I took it as correct. You know, it's a masking uh, agent as, as well. well. Uh, for other, yeah. for other drugs. Yeah. Mm. See, if you, I mean, that's the point here, Sarah. If these are if these are used correctly, then you can say okay, there's a a, a doctor here and everything's above board, but. These drugs can be abused as well, and we've seen in various sports TUEs abused. So that's that's the question mark now for the Premier League to grapple with, if they want to grapple with it. And I suppose the graphic here is non-Premier League players versus Premier League players, and and the perception here is that you have more support in a Premier League team in a professional environment. Yeah. In a non-Premier League t- 
environment or, or like myself in Croke Park, are you being hung out to dry? You know, what kind of protection do you have? And are you taking your life in your hands if, if you agree to a drugs test, but you don't necessarily have the same support that those Premier League guys have where there's no sanction? And some guys are getting up to four years for an instance where they don't, don't necessarily understand what they've done or, or why a TUE might be misconstrued. Mm. Well, that's the back page of the mail. That's an exclusive, by the way. That's nowhere else. So good work by Edmund Willison getting the freedom of information request in. Uh, Daniel Kinahan, as you can imagine, is right across the papers, front pages and back. Been extraordinary few days, really, post that press conference at Dublin City Hall. Do you want to get the ball rolling on any piece which caught your eye, Bernard? On Kinahan? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're all of a similar vein, yeah. really, I would say. Yeah, they're all of a similar vein. Michael Foley in the, in the Times. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's across. Every paper has a, has a piece on it. And I think what hit home to me or, or this week was obviously the press conference for the, uh, the Fury-White fight. And, you know, obviously uh, 17 journalists asked about 40 questions of Fury and White. Um, but Kinahan wasn't mentioned once. And... You know, obviously, had been um, well, well briefed or well uh, streamed in advance to make sure that there was no unfriendly, unfriendly questions. But yeah, just it's it's phenomenal the influence he's had on boxing. Um, you know, the front page of Sun Independent says you know he's been investing in rugby. When you drill down into it, it's 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 a sponsorship of a club in in Spain. But boxing has seemed to mean you know where um, most of the sports washing has has happened, and it's going to be interesting, obviously, as. As the pressure mounts on Kinahan and his and his um, syndicates, you know whether there's a whether there's anyone else I suppose to step up and put this type of money into into boxing. It seems to be very much built on the foundation of sand. Obviously, there's still a huge demand, ninety five thousand people in Wembley. It's not that it's not a popular sport, but um, how much of it actually is has been built on on his investments. Mm. Of this press conference during the week. Sarah, 17 journalists, writes uh, McFoley, asked about 40 questions of Fury and White. Kinnan was not mentioned once. After the press conference, the top rank reporter, Christina Poncher, who hosted the event, told The Times that another top rank representative on the call had decided who was permitted to ask questions. If anyone seriously thinks this story can be suffocated by silence, the actions of the US government alone have already ensured that it will not. And several pieces uh, talk about Bob Arum, for instance, making a fairly dramatic U-turn. So Mark Gallagher here in the Mail on Sunday says it's clear now that Arum realised what a miscalculation it was to defend Kinahan. And he has a quote, we are not going to deal with Daniel, Arum told Sports Mail on Tuesday. We respect the sanctions. We will deal directly with Tyson and his lawyer. I wasn't pleased with a number of things he was doing in boxing. I was looking to sever ties anyway. And then he spoke to Yahoo later in the week and he accused uh, Kinahan of using bullying tactics. So there's a real about turn on the part of Bob Arum. And Mark Gallagher notes, aside from a few brave souls such as Barry McGuigan and Billy Walsh, there were few in boxing who were willing to put their head above a parapet. Which I'm sure you can understand to an extent, Sarah. I, I can't imagine that I would go into my job on a, you know, Kieran Cunningham being being a person that I that I know and, and that I know has been, you know, stringent in terms of his pursuit of, of honesty and truth and fairness in, in relation to the story. He has a family and he has a daily life. And, you know, he, he's come through this knowing that he was potentially going to be intimidated, you know, on the street um, by people who, who don't want the, these bad kind of these stories to come out about Kinahan and, it's a very tough place to be when you're looking for truth and honesty in journalism and there's a lot of pressure um, 
coming from from people that you don't know or or understand how how dangerous they are. Eamon Sweeney's writing about it on the back page as well, and he talks of the likes of Paddy Barnes and Michael Conlon and Carl Frampton, and he writes, there's a certain reluctance to look at the implications of Barnes, Conlon and Frampton's MTK links. It's easy to rail against foreign promoters and the money men at media companies for apparently getting into bed with Kinnan. Criticising three Irish sporting heroes for doing so is a different matter. This leads to the pretense that certain stars can still be ranked among the good guys despite cozying up to Kinahan. It's a comforting delusion, but a di- dishonest one. Those involved with MTK and its associates knew what they were doing and who they were involved with. They are not children. They took the decision to go with MTK because they thought it made good business sense. Money talked. And uh, certainly I know, like, for instance, Mike Conlon no longer with MTK and has gone out on his own, but uh, there's a real sense, Bernard, that has hung over these boxers and certainly post the media ban in the Republic really the coverage of their fights has been close to non-existent yeah it has in the South in Republic but as I said worldwide it still seems boxing sure. is, is thriving you know so when we're a tiny market yeah. you know you know. so um, so yeah it, it's as I said it, it's, it's, it seems to be across the world he's got his fingerprints in nearly every major um you know, boxing, boxing warehouse or boxing club um, that have professional players and, and being able to be very much the puppet master controlling fights. Yeah. But where does it end? Uh, yeah. It's interesting. The English uh, papers are certainly have their their eye their eyes have been opened uh, to a large extent over the last uh, twelve months to eighteen months. And Donald McRae very much is you know by way of building up to what is a big fight at Wembley and English fighters. He's absolutely taking the Kinahan line and discussing the lack of questioning in the press conference as opposed to avoiding the subject. Yeah, he, he was very, very strong on it. I thought his piece was, was excellent. As you said, it's across across all the papers. But I think I admire the journalists now who are who are you know really asking questions and, and aren't afraid to to spit in the soup as such because, I mean, that, you know, Don McRae is, is, is most of the journeys of my read around him is about boxing, but mm. he's, he's challenging those that effectively he would be relying upon for interviews or access in the future. And that, that's certainly not easy. So, um, yeah, I, I think credit to him and all the other journalists who've, who've been very strong on it. Mm. Sarah, Shane Lowry sits down with Paul Kimmage to reflect on the Masters. Yeah, and, and look, an incredible an incredible performance at the Masters and you know you'd have to be incredibly proud of him and I know I was on with you a few weeks ago and I was a bit upset about um, his stance with Saudi Arabia and you know this is this is the kind of issue with with Shane he's an incredible sportsman and you want to back him and and, and sometimes he makes the wrong decisions but at the Masters again he got flack you know about his position I suppose with his caddy Mm. you know and and that relationship that that he has with him and, and I feel like Sometimes people don't necessarily understand the relationship you have with your teammate and, and, and how far you have to go. And, and, and maybe Bernard will back me up here. The, the, it's ugly sometimes, you know, and, and we were focusing perhaps, you know, in that instance on the wrong thing um, with his caddy. And I'm hoping, you know, that, that people understand that, that sometimes you have to have ugly, ugly conversations with your teammates and, and you get to move on and, and nobody has to be sacked or cancelled or that 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 sense that, you know, it, it can't be fixed. Uh, I felt that his performance at the Masters should should outweigh, you know, the, the com- com- comments around that the conversation with his caddy. Is this you apologising for your behaviour in the past? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> you were the shouter as opposed to the shouty? 
I was always the shouter, I know, and I know, and, and that's why I'm saying I use the word ugly, like a very straight, it's very straight here. But I, I just, I, I'm sure Bernard will step in here. Sometimes conversations with you have with your teammates are so ugly, yeah. but you move past it because, you know, it comes from a place of wanting to be a better performer. Mm. Uh, Mr. Nice Guy has a coding edge is the headline. Two page spread in the Sunday Independent. Looks like there's a part two as well. Uh, next week. So this is at Hilton Head where Shane, by the way, is uh, in the final pairing this evening. He's been playing great golf and he'll go out in the final pairing this evening with a great chance of winning. Shot a 65 yesterday. So this is on the Monday at Hilton Head, South Carolina. And uh, you feel like the piece is building up to the discussion about the uh, moment with the caddy. And clearly Shane Lowry feels it's coming as well because they're going through the week and going through the round and they're on to uh, building up to the moment. I think it's on Saturday, isn't it? Or Friday. Maybe it's Friday. Uh, you make par in 10, 11, 12. Shane says, yeah, I par the hard, hole, hard holes and then I F up on 13. In brackets, long pause. Paul Kimmich, go on. Shane, I knew you were going to ask me about this because everyone was effing talking about it. I didn't say anything. Shane laughs. I'm not stupid. So he knows it's coming. Uh, so he says, yeah, I had words with Bo. That's his caddy on 13. I had a good go with him. Go on. Basically, I missed my drive a little bit, but I'm... In the fairway, I have 220 yards to the front, but it's silly to go for it. So I'm going to lay up to a good number and try and get it down to a lob wedge. And Shane says it was an eight iron. I was trying to hit it 150, but I didn't do the numbers right. And I was playing, it was playing, sorry, 180 with the wind. So I was 30 yards out on the layup. And now I've got 110 yards instead of 80 to the flag. So Paul Kimmich says it's after you hit the third shot when you have a go at bow. I said something like, I'm 30 yards out or something with a few expletives thrown in. And then here's the part where it gets quite uncomfortable, I think, for Shane. (laughs) Paul says, I have it here. Shane says, I don't want to listen to that. Paul says, I've written it down. He laughs. F off, will you? Uh, So Paul quotes him. You said, ah, left myself no shot. What an effing shit layup that was. Well done. Well done, Bo. Only 30 yards out. Well done. Here's my question. How was it his fault, says uh, Paul Kimmich. And Shane says, because I hit the wrong club for my second shot. But you hit the shot. Look, I know I'm trying to win the Masters. I need someone to guide me. That's what caddies are for. I'm not saying he was completely at fault. It was some of my fault as well. And yes, I had a good go at him. But people don't understand how hard it is. We're out there playing one of the trickiest courses in the world. Every shot means so much to me and I F up and I let it out. That's what I do. Am I going to change for anyone? No, is uh, Shane's a feeling I'm not going to change for anyone so because um, I don't say he fully trusts Bo with every club if I think it's a six iron and he thinks it's a seven I'll hit seven and uh, there's just one last point that was kind of interesting uh, this was kind of a good insight maybe into uh, how different people operate so Paul Kimmage makes the point in 25 years we've never seen Tiger eat out a caddy like that we've never seen Harrington do it and Larry says but that's you know I'm a different person and he remembers that when Bo was on paternity leave, that his friend Darren Reynolds was caddying for him for two months. I didn't perform for two months when we started playing again after COVID. Miscut, miscut, 60th, tied 39th, miscut. And what Larry says about that is, I didn't feel I could be myself with Darren. It was all too nice. I'm a competitor. I'm out there trying to do my best and people think. And then he stops himself and he says, I keep saying people think, but what do I care what people think? And Kimmer says, we all care. And Larry says, OK, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, he says, every uh, he, 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 as a final point, says when him and Wendy are having an argument, she says to him, everyone thinks you're an effing nice fella. Uh, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is uh, end of argument, I would think. 
So uh, it's all very interesting. Look, you've been sports people. You've been under huge pressure. And yet it was an ugly moment. And if you saw it on camera, it went on too long. It wasn't just like an F you, Bo. God, Bo. It was like a well done, Bo. Well done. And, and even as Bo started to walk away, he was like, well done. And I suspect he did not want to see it back because yeah. a bit like the reality TV contestant who comes out and is doing their interview with Davina McCall, to be confronted on a screen with you at your worst, at your ugliest, it's almost hard to bear. No one wants to see that. And I suspect he wants to avoid it because he knows it wouldn't look good. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm really interested in in high-performing partnerships, teams, etc. And years ago, everyone used to think, right, get two really talented people, put them together. The goal is to win the Masters and, and you go do it, right? But actually now, all the research says, no, the, the first block of, of, of kind of successful teams is safety it's called psychological safety right and then from that you get trust and then you get the behaviours that are acceptable and then you set your goals right so and what does safety mean safety is basically that you're safe being yourself and um, and that Bo can challenge Shane Shane can challenge Bo um, but they've got such a level of trust that they're able to park it so like Shane could have had that outburst he's obviously mentally frazzled because he's made a mistake um, then he could have been thinking about, oh, how does Bo feel about that? Because you, you know, you know, you've done it, right? But obviously, he's got that level of safety with Bo and, and trust that Shane was able to leave behind without worrying that Bo was going to carry it on. And actually, like to be honest, he rescued the situation. I mean, you know, he didn't win the Masters, but he had a successful competition. Um, the problem is, and why sport is fascinating, particularly um, from outsiders. And, and I'm not a, a golf fan, but I'm I'm really interested in golfers, you know, and, and how they react. Is we all get a glimpse into that, but as Sarah knows, and uh, you know, when you're in teams, like there's certain people in your team who, with pressure, will react in ways maybe that aren't ideal, yeah. particularly in the build-up. Like Sarah, I don't know. I'm not sure about Sarah, but myself, or you know, we've all been there. But when you know them and you trust them, you let it slide, yeah, because you know Saturday they're gonna perform. Johnny Sexton jumps to mind. Yeah, Johnny, but Johnny would go through a wall for everybody. But yeah. that, and that's his redeeming quality. Yes, yeah, and there's guys who the guys who wouldn't go through a wall for you, but you have to tolerate because they're brilliant. And yeah. you know Saturday. No, I'm not going to name anybody, but you know Saturday that you want to. They want Rocky Elson. So Rocky Elson was a phenomenal player. He yeah. was six man of the match six times in 2009 in nine games in the Champions Cup or Heineken Cup. But I have a Heineken Cup medal without him. No, I wouldn't. But was he the best guy to be around? You know, was he selfish? Yes, he was. So he wasn't like Johnny Sexton where you could trust him with your life. But yet, he wasn't a bad fella. But just, he was very individualised in his approach. Well, I, I, I even spoke to one player who was like, he wouldn't even do the warm-up no. properly with us. Yeah. And there's a point where you have to say, okay, if he keeps getting man of the match, he can warm up whatever way he wants. But somebody, but with the, the same player was saying, I wasn't sure long-term it was such a good thing. Yeah. Well, we only had him for a short period. But yeah, yeah if you look at his career post-Leinster, you know, he didn't really hit the heights that he, he should have. And, and definitely, if you speak to teammates who played with him, he became a, a difficult individual, particularly when he became captain. So for us, he had a leadership role, but he wasn't a captain. We had, obviously, O'Driscoll, Leo Cullen, Cheka. Cheka was very good at managing Rocky um, and let Rocky have his own unique uh, personality and character. Uh, but knew what he could bring yeah. you know it's like uh, Alex Ferguson with, with Eric Cantona and you know the story about him turning up at the airport in, in his own casual gear and, and Alex letting slide bringing him off for a walk etc without finding him which everyone else thought he was going to do so um, yeah we've all been there and but it's it's like we trusted Rocky to get it done on a Saturday um, you know I think Bo in the situation and Shane also trusts Bo to make the right decisions. Like he says, as you said, I fully trust Bo at every club. If he thinks it's a six iron, I'll hit a seven. Listen, it's hard to explain to people who don't play golf for a living, especially in very highly pressurised situations. And, you know, 
Shane Lowry wouldn't have done what he's done without being a winner and a winning mentality and winning mentality is different I mean the fact that Tiger Woods has never balled out his, his yeah. caddy we know Tiger has another you know flaws to his personality so um, it's, a, it's a very good interview um, it's interesting but I, I think that everybody has their own unique way of preparing of acting um, and the most important thing is that they're able to be themselves on a, on a golf course and obviously he regrets it now but realistically that's the way he has to be to, to win I'd love to know um, it doesn't quite come up maybe they get to it at some stage but I watched it and I wondered to what extent in crossing the line and realising I've crossed the line a bit here this was a touch beyond the normal to and fro of player and caddy did he distract himself because then he three puts on the green now it was a difficult enough put but he was playing very well and it's difficult enough to take on Augusta but if you've created a, a dynamic even if you know for instance Sarah well Bo can take it this is how we operate he knows who I am but at, at some point if you're thinking I'm going to have to apologise to him later that's a that's an extra bit of energy sapped for the remaining two hours of the round and so I'd, I'd, I'd love to know if he thinks it affected him you know he three puts on 13 doesn't finish the way he should finish he walks off a bit disconsolate on Saturday I wonder if you know you're taking on Gusta, but you're also standing on the tee box and it's gone pretty quiet with you and your caddy and you're thinking to yourself oh man I'm, feel, I'm starting to feel a bit guilty here and, th- and that might have been an aspect where it was a touch uh, touch self-defeating on the Saturday as well I mean you can probably delve into your own experience where you feel oh crap I'm going to have to apologise for that one later in the meantime here comes the slitter I never ever thought about who I had to apologise to right. afterwards and I and, and I genuinely mean that so I, you're I, a sociopath was, is what's emerging here yeah but <laughs> Those and and I don't think that that sapped any energy. I would be so surprised right. if you know four years time Shane sitting in front of you and says that sapped energy at that point. He, he that performance level and and I loved the way Bernard referenced that psychological safety, that trust. There, there's teammates that I've known that you know that that we've had those ugly conversations and neither of us ever felt like that took energy away from where we needed to be or where we needed to go. Those conversations happen in the most random of ways three weeks later you sure you know it's, it's almost it's almost cathartic to let it out three weeks later but it never at that moment did I ever feel like I was wrong or or I ever let it you know miss take take my energy and and, I, and I'll stand over that till the day that I die very good well next week uh, there's a part two quest for greatness Shane Larry on life love and ambition since the open so well worth a read it's not just about the um moment on 13 as well that ugly moment on the 13th <laughs> yeah which uh, do you know it's interesting I think on American television they killed the mic for it it was muted so I, I, can you imagine how many moments like this we miss all the time how commonplace they must be all the time so you know it's just that it was caught on camera and we were then talking about it afterwards but it's kind of interesting he was he was aware everyone's talking about yeah. it uh, Steve Thompson I'm sure you're interested in this uh, very grim situation so Steve Thompson World Cup winner with England, early onset dementia, very much puts it down to the uh, spate of concussions and the toll the game uh, took on his health. And he has a new book coming out and it was serialised in the UK edition of the Sunday Times. You can read it online, which I did. And it's absolutely horrific, as you might imagine. He talks about uh, screaming at his dog at one point who was misbehaving and his three-year-old son was staring up at him kind of confused and he realised he was screaming at the dog but using his son's name and then he describes other occasions where he's talking to his wife and just can't remember her name you know he's just they're mid-conversation as you would be around the kitchen and he knows that she's his wife and it's just like oh 
what's her name? What's her name? And that is a terrifying early glimpse of where he knows he's probably headed. And he talks about the enormous guilt he feels at what he's going to ask of his family over the coming decades and, and has had some very dark thoughts about the imposition he's going to cause and would I be better off if and it's it's utterly horrific it really is so he has a new book coming out and he talked as well about watching the 03 World Cup back with a friend during lockdown because they were shown all sporting events and he couldn't remember any of it couldn't remember any of it it was all God I don't remember that pool game and then knockout stages and even the final all no memory of it so Clive Woodward has uh, responded in the mail and uh, we'll get to Stephen Jones in a moment. He's talking about uh, rugby almost going too far in terms of uh, rulings and decisions when it comes to trying to protect players. But uh, Woodward is, uh, well, he's as horrified as everyone, Bernard. You must be horrified. Yes, I played against um, uh, um, Thompson and he was, he was uh, as Woodward says, he was the best hooker in the world in 2003. And it was interesting, look, look, he's having an unbelievably hard time, but he says he wished he never played in 2003 final, which is very rare for an athlete. Usually, if they've had a massive success, even though their whole life is is affected, they still say, "Oh, well, but you know, I would never change that for for the world." But he's in a very, very uh, tough place. I think there's a TV documentary coming out about him, and he's he's probably there's a lot of players who've who've joined this um, uh, lawsuit, you know, against World Rugby and against the unions around concussion. But you know, in terms of how badly it's affecting him, he seems to be. You know, on a, there's a, he seems to be on a, on a very extreme scale, and it's very, very sad. And and um, I don't know, like money's not good to him. Even you know, even a compensation's not good to him, really, given the fact of of how his his family life's been affected and 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 his memory loss and um, how he struggles to to manage that relationship with his children, etc. So it's uh, it's very, very, yeah, it's 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 shocking. And then obviously. Every single week, as a as a pundit, yeah, you know we're we're commentating on head height challenges, wondering whether they're right, they're yellow card or red card, and um, there hasn't been. I mean, even last, you know, yesterday Leicester had a red card for head height contact. We saw a red card in in Ravenhill. It could have been two in the same tackle. Um, players aren't adapting their behaviours. It's funny, isn't it? It's so slow. Sorry. Well, funny is that yeah. it's curious. But two years into this, I'd say we're about two years yeah. into these red cards being flashed for these any contact with the head moments and. Look at Charlie Hills, James Ryan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's look at it. it's a very physical sport. Guys are bigger. There's less space. Yeah, you know, there's little room for error. But I'm actually really shocked at how how slow players are to adapt. I'm asking anytime I get a chance. I'm asking defense coaches if they're on or players. Are you? What are you being coached now? Because I can't figure out why it's still happening. I'm getting wishy enough answers. I have. To I don't say. think they're being coached drastically differently. I don't either. And also, what, what the reaction? Oh, so. And look at it, it's human nature, you protect your, your team. But when a player steps over the mark um, and gets a red card or gets cited, you know, the support he gets from the manager, which is important, etc. But you haven't seen many players lose their select, lose their position or lose their contract. You know, maybe Papali and Connacht, you know, he was red carded three times. Maybe that's a factor in why he hasn't been renewed. But um, I just, I don't think as a, you know, we can blame the officials all we want. But I, I think uh, the, the coaching and playing fraternity yeah. a little bit slow to react uh, very slow very slow it, yeah. like I don't know if they're reacting <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Like, we're still seeing red cards Woodward so the headline piece in his uh, mail piece the headline of it is it's heartbreaking to watch my World Cup heroes suffer so much and he also says as you did that he thought Thompson was the best hooker at the 03 World Cup and for a few years thereafter but Sarah he makes the point with rugby so, so Bernard is highlighting the slowness to adjust to these high tackles and these head collisions but Woodward makes maybe the more worrying point for rugby 
which is that uh, there is just an intrinsic physicality which is impossible to take out of the game's DNA. So let's imagine a world where everyone's tackling perfectly. And what Woodward says is you can be tackled perfectly legally around the legs and still knock yourself out or get concussed as your head hits the ground. Stray elbows, opposition knees can accidentally hit your head at any time or you can drive in with a textbook tackle, hip height and hit the bony part of your opponent and come off much worse. And that is the scary prospect, I suppose, for rugby. And and, and it's another generation or two until we realise if uh, taking away the, the high hits is enough to prevent the damage that we're seeing the previous generation deal with. Sport is, you know, not just rugby. I had two Camogie teammates who suffered concussion um, and it, at, at, at the level that required them to step away from the game for six, eight, ten months. And they're still suffering now. Right. And I, I suppose you're, you're thinking as a player now and, and, and as you read this, my duty of care to my teammates or my duty of care to my to the opposition and uh, you know we're talking about the slowness of, of players reacting to the changes that are required to make it safe for players to play sport so do we have to step back as players and go do I need to be as physical is it worth being this physical to do the damage that we're going to do to somebody to win a game you know like that, and that's what I look at now I go I, I owe a duty of care to the person on the field next to me or the person of the opposition. Uh, and I wonder, do we all need to step back and say, how much is it worth to me to win this game? Mm. Yeah, just that's, on, that's, uh, that's where I'm at, you know. Just on Thompson, and I'm not sure if a lot of people realise this, he actually retired with a neck injury, had a big insurance payout and was out of the game for a while, got second and third opinion and came back. In France. In, in, in France, yeah. yeah, he came to brief. So he paid back the money he got from insurance and obviously that, that was null and void. Um, he 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 accepted that he could never claim for that again. Coming back, came back to breathe, and I can't remember. I presume it was 2011 World Cup. He tried to. He thought he could win a second World Cup. Uh, just couldn't get back to the same level of form. But I I wonder, you know, and it's it's just I wonder was it uh, concussions he got in the second bout that maybe has 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 made it even worse for him. I mean, can you imagine being in his situation or his wife and saying, you know, it's one thing, you know, having that injury, but like was it? Was it that desire to get back to play for England again that maybe made it as bad as it is? Like it's 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 uh, it must be an absolute mess for for him and his family. Yeah, I I he seems just in a kind of shock. I mean, and there's an ITV documentary about it actually, which is on the way. Clive Woodward mentions that. Uh, so Woodward also said there's still much work to be done to break down some of these flying clearouts are extraordinarily dangerous to heads and limbs, and referees are not doing enough to eradicate them. They are illegal, but are not being penalised which is another point uh, Stephen Jones by the way we don't spend too long on it but he, he's just uh, he was observing what he felt was just a very accidental moment in a game Guy Porter of Leicester uh, sent off for nothing he says Porter dismissed for a simple rugby collision of a sort that happens about 200 times a game uh, this is where rugby's caution starts to ev- affect severely the nature of the sport itself I don't I didn't see that I, I, I totally disagree with him oh, I, do you? I, I, I like Stephen Jones but um uh, it was a horrendous uh, it was actually one of the worst I've seen this year because effectively uh, the Claremont player was ru- was was running a decoy line at first it wasn't it was accidental but this is one that has to be a red card right. so if, like when you have the ball you, you you expect contact and in some ways you can protect yourself you can't protect yourself if you get a like a head on head but you are braced for impact but this one here uh, um, Lee the, the Claremont number 8 Fritz Lee Fritz yeah. Lee was literally didn't see the, the hit now first 
it was an accidental collision, yes. but it was head on head at high volume. And for me, it was it was a red card because if, if you let that slide, um, you're just looking for ways to not give red. So, and I think the siding the siding commissioners, in fairness, they they did ban the player for for five weeks. I think. Um, so yeah, I disagree with Stephen here, um, and I, I think we need to support the officials. And if they get it wrong on the side of caution, so be it. Okay. Um, and it's very difficult for the officials, but I think if the if if as, if as a, a punditry journalist, rugby people, we don't support them and understand it's very difficult. But safety is paramount. Uh, we're going to get mixed. That's what we're, yeah, that's what we're talking. About. It's a duty of care piece, Bernard. Like ultimately, I'm going into a tackle. Uh, I need to know ultimately that I don't need the other person to be ill affected by by how I'm going to impose myself on the game. Yeah. That's that's how I feel. You know, and, and I'd like to, I'd, I'd love to have known that when I was so so intensely involved in games, you know, five or six years ago. You know, uh, that trigger piece, it's, it's how is this going to impact them in the long run? And, and I think we all need to educate ourselves around that. Sarah, you picked out Ruth Fahey's piece in the Sunday Independent. Move the next Irish match, the big Irish match against Finland, move it to the Aviva Stadium is the call. And I agree. And, and I suppose fundamentally why I'm looking for the game to be moved to the Aviva is Windsor Park was a sellout uh, for Northern Ireland last weekend. And while the results didn't go Northern Ireland's way, they lost 5-0 to England. They had 15,000 fans there. And we have four months to build up to this next game for Ireland. And I think we could have a big crowd in the Aviva mm. because of the momentum, because of an amazing sponsor in Sky right now for Ireland. Uh, and I think Irish women in sport and those particular group of players, because of their commitment, deserve the backing and they deserve the Aviva to be open to them. It's a very easy sell as well. So you presume Ireland will win away to Georgia. They beat them, what, was it 13-0 or 11-0? Everyone's beaten them by a hockey score at the moment, a cricket score. So they'll beat Georgia away and then Finland, September the 1st, at the Aviva Stadium. A win against Finland could secure second place, could secure qualification to the playoff stages. So like that's a an easy sell you know you know, like in a line and uh, we are event junkies as well and look it's the 12th man it, it's that extra roar it's it's you know 10 15,000 women in the Aviva supporting these amazing athletes and you know I'm not all about oh you know it's next week it's two weeks time we need to we need to move the bus as quickly as we can we, we have a window here for the whole you know population I'm not saying everyone has to go but yeah. enough people could go to the Aviva to really support these women in, you know, qualifying for their first campaign. And we talked before about sponsors and, you know, and really getting behind the team. Sky's sponsorship has been incredible. Mm. And, I, and I can't like out believe <laughs> I never, it, it's the easiest hashtag, you know, but it, it's so bright and straightforward. And there, there's an opportunity here to, to support a, a great group of women. And I loved what Ruth said. I actually played golf with Ruth about four weeks ago and we'd never come against, up against each other, you know, in all the years that I was playing soccer and she was playing soccer. We met in the golf course four weeks ago. And when I saw the piece today, I went, yes, Ruth, that's, that's incredible. There's four months here to, to really build this up. Let, let's get this done. Mm. Well, if we can get, what, 40,000 uh, routinely to football finals, ladies football finals, then yeah. this is an easy sell, I would think. It's a no-brainer. In, in, the only thing I would say is actually maybe just consult with players and management first, and just double check that they're not of the opinion, well, we're very used to Tala, we're used to the pitch, it's an advantage for us, we have a feel for it, and a great atmosphere there suits us better. But once they're, if they give thumbs up, green light, yeah, Viva Stadium sounds good to us, then 
plough on, I would think. Well, I, I think the girls are looking at Spain and, and 91,000 fans, you know, yeah. two weeks ago mm. uh, in Spain for, for the women's game. And I think these players now understand that they're carrying a little more pressure, but they're so excited about what's happening. And, you know, the likes of Katie McCabe and Louise Quinn playing in the WSL, Nifahi, week in, week out now, they're getting used to the bigger crowds. Mm. So 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 they're all it's it's incumbent on them to to be able to carry this this wave of positivity and and i'd say they're they're going let's go like bring as many people as you can yeah i suspect Mm. you're right i don't think they're that attached to tala that you know they wouldn't jump at the aviva so but maybe just in the interest of you know putting performance first just double check with them on the off chance but i i I suspect they'd say uh, absolutely did you ever as a matter of interest smaller stadium versus bigger were there ever times where you preferred the familiarity of the RDS to a certain game at the Aviva or would you always jump at the chance to go Aviva? Yeah, we jumped at the chance but I think okay. it's topical because of obviously the, the Tolman Park Munster situation at the moment. I, I've no doubt that Munster players um, and uh, would prefer to play Toulouse in Tolman Park. Yeah. You know, it's a big enough stadium. Aviva isn't their second home as such and I think they have a far greater chance of uh, of beating Toulouse if the game was played in Tolman or one of the big GA stadiums in, in Munster because of that nuance that that would give it I think it's going to be very hard to see Munster beat Toulouse so just the background to that is obviously Munster due to play Toulouse at home in the ne- in the quarter final but because of the Ed Sheeran concert um, they have to, they can't play in Tolman Park A genuine question <laughs> has any artist wreaked more havoc on an Irish sport in summer? <laughs> In history, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's incredible the ramifications of of, of, of of both you know rugby and GA booking them in to get much needed revenue, but obviously it's blown up a little bit in terms of. I feel like we're going to move this game against Finland to the Aviva, and then it'll turn out Ed Sheeran has a book, <laughs> <laughs> or Michael Bublé, one yeah. of the two. Yeah. You know, it's either it's either Ed or Michael Bublé. That's yeah, always the case. Yeah, yeah. If there's ever a time when Michael Bublé is not uh, playing the Aviva, hell is frozen over. <laughs> So, uh, well, that's Ruth Fahey, page 12, something event. I think that's going to gather momentum, actually. I think that's going to... Well, as I said, it's four months. You know, we're not... It's not like we're asking to to switch the lights on next Tuesday. Mm. You know, we have a genuine, like, movement here. And and I think Sky will be... will be really positive in all of this. And you couldn't get a bigger sponsor than Sky for the the women's sport. And look, you know, obviously Cadbury's is a massive sponsor as well. And, you know, and and they're involved. But... uh, Definitely Sky have the momentum here and I think they'll push it. Okay. Uh, by the way, just to uh, flip back to Ruby for one second because there was a piece I wanted to ask for your thoughts on. I ask the pundits this question every time they're on. This is the uh, the Leinster question. Whenever uh, we're trying to analyse Leinster, it's quite difficult because they blitz most teams yeah. and they look amazing doing it. So it's like, but then they've been sucker punched the last couple of seasons, be it Saracens or La Rochelle. And so... Generally, when I ask the pundits, they're not worried. But Neil Francis here uh, states it pretty succinctly. The byline in the piece in the Sunday Times, Leinster's skill can only take them so far in Europe. Ultimately, their forward pack still lacks size. So, in effect, he's remembering being at the 2019 final against Saracens in Newcastle and seeing Will Skelton and thinking, good God. And he says, you know, La Rochelle, Toulouse, Racine, they have this sort of chain gang pack that can subdue Leinster with size and brute force and even Leinster with a powerhouse front row and an obdurate and dynamic back row might not be able to compensate for being underpowered in the second row. Ross Maloney, Josh Murphy, very good on Friday night at the Aviva, but he's he's pointing to the absence of Ryan Baird and James Ryan and uh, he says they have a decent chance in the Heineken Cup but it is patently obvious they will struggle in the knockout stages against the first side they meet with a big aggressive pack, uh, the answers we are getting thus far don't fill us with confidence. 
look at I, I I do agree with him. I do worry about Leinster when they play big physical teams um, or teams who've got threats all over the field like Toulouse who aren't built on that physicality the Will Skelton one is interesting I mean he's he's one man and he has had a big influence on games against Leinster but I do think Leinster have worked towards getting more power shifted across their team um, so for example the game in La Rochelle that Leinster lost last year in the, in the, in the semi-final you know, no Sexton Porter was subbing because he was playing a tight head. Uh, no Caelan Doris who was out with concussion. No Dan Sheen to come off the bench. No Gibson Park, and I think Gibson Park is key because if you play with Gibson Park, Gibson Park is probably the best nine in the world at the moment of creating tempo and space. Right, so um, if you play world at, at that at that game, he? he's not the best nine in the world. Like he's not an Anton Dupont um, in terms of being able to score, but he brings other people into the game. An incredible level. Uh, honestly, it's it's phenomenal how much he's improved and how important he is to Leinster and Ireland. That's not against Luke McGrath. It's just Leinster can't match. Um, Le- Leinster's going to be interesting because they're a very strong set piece team, but they can't they can't match Racing or La Rochelle in terms of sheer power. In terms of one on one contests, like three or four guys, and particularly not the second row, like James Ryan, Ryan Baird will find it difficult against you know La Rochelle or Racing in that area. But Leinster spread it across. The, the, the team so Porter as a loose head you know he, he's made a huge difference you know having Sheen to come on for the last 20 minutes for for Keller Doris is a is a power athlete he mightn't be as big as some of the big giants that he comes up against but he wins collisions and Robbie Henshaw James Lowe etc you know have that power game but it's about being able to play at pace when you look back at the Saracens loss they just got completely hamstrung at the scrum I mean the scrum was the was the source of um, most of their issues Keller didn't play that day. I think Leo and, and Stuart they played uh, Sean Cronin, Keen Healy. Um, you know he, his power isn't where it was at, and and Saracens were very very good. There's no scrum in the, in, left in the Champions Cup as powerful as Saracens. Uh, so I don't think Leicester will get demolished at scrum time. But I think from a power point of view, they play at such speed and with such vari- variety. If they have the likes of Doris and, and Porter, um, and and Sheen and and um, Keller available. I, and Gibson Park particularly I think that they can do it this year I genuinely do I thought they they, they laid down a marker Friday night against Connacht um, where they just had a real attitude and they could have went they could have played them lots of different ways but they went after them directly you know showing that power and that's something that is going to be absolutely key because you can't run away from a fight um, particularly in, in the latter stages of Europe uh, so I, I, I can see where Fano's worried but I, I, I would say that Leinster look like they're better equipped and also for next year I know he's like, he, he says, look at Jason Jenkins, he won two caps the same day, he won his first cap, his first and his last, but he's been brought in for a reason to give Leinster that extra bit of power. Um, uh, and also he says about James Ryan, I don't think we should be, as, as people who are outside, you know, really casting aspersions on when people should play again, you know. So James Ryan, I saw him warming up on Friday night. Um, if Leinster and, and the RFU and he feels he's ready to play, well, then obviously we have to take on trust that he can play. Um, it's just an interesting one on the whole concussion debate, and that's and I, I've just come from saying player safety is paramount, and I do believe it. But also, I don't think as outsiders we should really cast um, our opinion on areas that we know little about. Yeah, does that make sense? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I haven't seen his medical records. No. Uh, so I'll come to you by that way on that piece in the Observer you picked out in Crystal Palace as we wrap up Sarah anything else grab your eye that you fancied giving a mention to I'm sure you're reading all the championship coverage and getting ready for showtime how many points do you think Cork will beat Limerick by 
not enough. Um, <laughs> I, I think Limerick were very shrewd in, in this year's league and they tested the boundaries of the referees and they put referees under the spotlight. And I feel it's the referee will be under the spotlight today and will it will allow Limerick to play they want, the way they want to play. Oh, and really you can read from that what you will. Well, I, yeah. well I, I don't even know what to read into it. Go on. Um, I, I think they, they made the league about referees and the way referees treat Limerick. And they took red cards at, at, you know, at different points and they took yellow cards and they took decisions against them to allow the focus to become about the referee. And I feel like today the f- referee will be very aware that he will be incredibly scrutinised because of how Limerick played the league. And, and I think that will allow Limerick to be incredibly physical today. And they will ultimately intimidate Cork, who are stickmen. And this is a game of combat, and I don't think Cork are ready for Limerick today. Interesting. So you think they went out and were ultra-aggressive and really pushed the lines deliberately in the league in a bid to... Well, I don't know why. I mean, because the, the flip side of, of your, your theory would be that they have now acquired a, a reputation as a team that crossed the line and therefore it's easier to send them off because, well, you've got a history, mate. I mean, I might be sending you off today, but like lots of other referees have sent you off before. So it's on you. It's not me. No. It doesn't work like that in the GA. Like the, the referees, the referee today will be of the vein, you know, the Brian Gavin vein, like let the game go. We're, it's, it's a combat game. We're hurlers, you know, let let this game be the game that we want the game to be. Mm. And and the referee will look to make the game a spectacle and not punish necessarily, you know, the game for the physicality that Limerick will want to bring. And mm. he will allow things to happen today Go. that he didn't allow to happen in the league. Interesting. And, I, and I'm very straight on that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. Because like I, when I try and think of the Limerick red cards, a lot of them are like for off the ball, like flinging a hurley and, and scuffle stuff as opposed to heavy hits. But in order to be able to play as physically as they want to play, they had to set a precedent where they were obviously under the spot, you know, in the spotlight. Mm. And the referee today is going to want the game to be about hurling. So he's going to let that physicality happen today. It's going to be, it's going to intimidate Cork because Cork now are braced for that physicality that Limerick will bring. And the referee will allow the game to be played the way that he thinks that the spectators want to see the game to be played. Yeah. I, uh... I'd probably disagree with you. I, I just don't think you willfully go out and do that. I think it's really interesting theory. Like, from my point, I, I would think Limerick are saying we're the best team by distance. We've whooped everyone. We've no trouble whipping Cork. We're better than them. We don't need to go out in a league and get a bunch of red cards to somehow soften up referees. Like, that seems like a... I mean, it may look like that in retrospect, but I don't know how you could... John Kiley would sit down and Paul Knurk and say, this is the way to go in the league. Let's tell the lads to go out and really push it and get a few sending offs thrown in, No. The conversations after last year were like, God, Garrow Tegarty is so physical. Yeah. You know, surely there's a way of stopping him. And then, you know, then, then the referees looking at Garrow Tegarty going, God, maybe he's too physical. And then Limerick are braced for that going, OK, now we have to show that, like, let's misdirect the, the, the focus here from Garrow Tegarty, who's a man mountain yeah. and he's a stunning hurler. Yeah. But we now need to direct the, the focus somewhere else because now everyone's focused on, well, maybe actually they're too physical and, and you know, may, maybe they have too much in the tank. We need to pair that back. So let's get the freeze involved. How many, You know, let, let's start punishing them for their physicality. Okay. But I, I feel like by doing that in the league, by taking those cards, by, yeah. by unduly pushing referees, now yeah. the referee today is going, no, I just want this to be about hurling. Yeah. 
And now we're back to basics where Gerald Hegarty gets to hurl and be physical. Okay, interesting. Well, listen, a lot of people tend to listen to this podcast on a Monday morning or <laughs> after the game. So it can be, I mean, who knows what lies in store and uh, they can have your uh, theory uh, ringing in yeah. their ears. Uh, you wanted to mention very briefly because time is against yeah, us. Yeah, it's a very uh, small piece in, in The Observer. In The Observer by yeah. Ed Ahrens. It's basically about um, what people, what, what it's alluding to is it's the brains behind Crystal Palace's uh, style of play. And, and what I like is, well, the reason I like it is it's always fascinating to see how how superstar players set up their management team. Okay, so Patrick Vieira, this guy, um, Saeed Agoun, he was a teacher in Paris. Um, he started to work for French television uh, channel RMC as a kind of a pundit, blew people away with his depth of knowledge, a real geek of the game. And Emmanuel Petit, who obviously played with Vieira, had worked with him on TV and he told Patrick Vieira about him. Patrick Vieira reached out to him and said, look, neither of us have a job at the moment, but when I get a job, I'm going to bring you on board, right? So he's, he's come on board as this kind of tactical coach, but his role is also transition. So he works with the young players to help them go from the academy to the senior team. And only six English clubs have have this at the moment. It's, it's actually quite common in rugby, but obviously in football it's not. So Arsenal, Brentford, Fulham, Liverpool, Man United and Wolves have a coach whose job is to help those players transition. But why it was interesting to me is obviously, you know, the fact that he's not a traditional footballer. He's, he's kind of self-made as such. But um, I remember hearing about Pep Guardiola and Pep Guardiola got offered the Barcelona job he was coaching the under under 16s and the president said to him look at what's your management team and most coaches will say I need a head of S&C who I know I need a head of medical I need a, a coach I need a head of recruitment and it's quite standard and they usually go with each other so if you look at Sean Dice he brings a team with him brings a team out um, but Pep Guardiola said look at I want all those guys plus this guy called Manuel Estierta whose uh, nickname was the Maradona of the Water, so played water polo for Spain, went to six Olympics, and he's there as his people coach. So basically he just watches people in the in the group, and he's called, Crep uh, Guardiola says he's his guardian angel, and he's gone from Barcelona to, to Bayern to Man City. So if Pep Guardiola, who's obviously a brilliant tactician, obviously has lots of money to buy the best players in the world, is willing to, or understands what he needs to help him, um, it's just fascinating how, I suppose, high performers like Vieira or, or, or Pep Guardiola look at their own strengths and weaknesses and look to, to fill those gaps so for guys who aren't you know ex-professional soccer players or basketballers etc um, there is a, a different route into potentially getting to the highest level as a coach mm, very interesting we are out of time Bernard Jackman thank you so much for coming into the studio thank you Sarah Donovan great to have you on thanks so much Sarah thanks guys The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball 